0: Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Sometimes you run into people whose words profoundly challenge established worldviews and narratives. One such person is sociocultural anthropologist Gabriela Sanchez who has been researching and and working on issues surrounding migrants and smuggling now for more than a decade. And she works on the US-Mexico border where she's from, but also has worked across the Americas, North Africa, and Europe. Sanchez is the author of the 2016 book, Human Smuggling and Border Crossings. She is indeed one of the top experts in the world on these issues, and I find myself turning to her quite often. So that's why you won't want to miss the following discussion. I've wanted to have Gabriela Sanchez on our podcast now for quite a while, and she does not disappoint. Um, She takes on the many misconceptions and myths head-on, especially surrounding smuggling and cartels. And, And I say that including my own. During the interview, she will correct some of the terminology that I use to give to give a more clear picture of what is really happening. And what she offers is, is not only a new understanding of how smuggling operations work, but also a new and important framing that challenges entrenched border narratives that so often hide injustice and inequality. I wanted to start out by asking you. Um now let's go back a couple months to um the the mass death experience, the tragedy that happened in San Antonio in June where 53 people died in the back of a tractor trailer. Um f- 53 people who were crossing the border. And I think immediately to I th- immediately thought of you actually, Gabriela, when when President Joe Biden got up and I think he tweeted something to along the lines of the smugglers being solely at fault for for what happened, and I one wanted to hear your response to that and and get a more a deeper analysis of what what you think happened, but also two I wanted to hear what you thought were some of the kind of cornerstone myths that many have around smugglers and smuggling and the border, and maybe how you might dispel some of those myths.
1: Of course. Migrant smuggling facilitators are the perfect scapegoats. And... Sadly, it's very easy for those of us who are in policy, academia, and government to just blame and you know, turn turn the blame onto them whenever incidents of this you know nature happen. And specifically, you know, in the case of San Antonio, um, I, um, you know, the the highway that takes to the place where the the truck just arrived is right here, right up the street from the house, and it was um, a devastating incident because of what. Had been happening in the community over the the months that preceded the event. You know, we had Uvalde, we also had the incident in Del Rio. You know, with um, the, the Haitian migrants, and so it was. You know, kind of like this, if you want to call it the perfect storm. It was very easy to blame um, the the people who are behind these crossings for what had happened, um, without having to critically engage with the fact that um, the border is more lethal than ever, that enforcement has become um, so ingrained, you know, in in terms of, you know, especially in these communities in South Texas that, that are very isolated, highly marginalized, and that rely on a, a predominantly Latino workforce, you know, that, that which constitutes um, CBP and a lot of the local border enforcement agencies. So it's very simple in that way to just blame, um, the, you know, again, the, the smugglers without having a very clear understanding of, of the dynamics. But we see this again around the world. It's not unique to what happened in San Antonio. Um, the initial claim, you know, like as, as you mentioned, Biden just went into the offensive saying that it was, again, the smugglers. And this is a, um, a line that the White House has been using for a very, very long time. And it forces or, or leads, rather, people to immediately think that there is a criminal element that is highly organized and that is uh, predominantly linked to drug trafficking organizations that operate in Mexico. Um, there is also, of course, the claim that these groups are financially exploiting migrants um, and that put them in this situation you know, without migrants being really aware of what they are likely to face during their journeys. What we know through the work that we have been doing along the U.S.-Mexico border and also along other migration corridors is that this process of border crossing facilitation is most of the time facilitated by people who live along those com- these communities. Nobody is going to have the kind of knowledge and awareness of the landscape and also of the political dimensions, you know, like things that are happening in these little towns where everybody knows each other. Mm-hmm. So um, despite all of the claims and all of the coverage that surrounded the incident, logistically, it was virtually impossible that the truck could have, been, could have transited the, the checkpoint at the border, the port of entry. What we know now is that most people cross um, you know, by land um, into the, all of these little towns on the, Ameri- on the American side of the border, you know, Roma, Rio Grande, um, San Ignacio, and then from there they were taken to a location in, in Laredo you know, where they were put um, you know, in this truck and then transported you know, um, up north. Um, those who were involved in, their, in the facilitation were, you know, like at least four men have been identified all four of them are of, um, you know, Latino or Mexican, in, in this specific case, Mexican-American origin. Um, two of them, if, um, it, you know, it really didn't, I'm surprised that the media didn't catch on, on this, but um, two of them were initially mentioned and described as being involved, and then they just fell off the radar. The other two, um, a 26-year-old man, and a man, I believe, in his early 40s were the other two who were indicted. Um, One of them was a a Walmart employee and another one was a drifter with a long rap sheet of um, offenses that involve petty crime, you know, possession, um, theft. So we're looking at people from the border who work on the border, who are um, people who have experienced um, precarity of, financial nature, primarily, and who are also of migrant origin. Here, they definitely have transnational connections, as all of us do these days. So this is not unique to to the smuggling facilitators. And even though this information has not been released, but it's likely to come up, also the evidence suggests that many times they are just paid a few thousand dollars for their involvement. So this claims that they make... um, hundreds of thousands on a single trip or that they are, they have all of this connections on transnational crime and really don't hold. You know, once you start looking at the, um, at the evidence and, and the very legal record that surrounds the cases.
0: Can you, can you make the case that um, the, the people that you're talking about, the crossing facilitators, like it's hard for me to imagine how the kind of network um, works, right? Like, is it a bigger network and, they are, like you're saying, like one at one worked in Walmart, you know, where probably they didn't earn hardly anything, but are they the kind of lower, uh, could you put it the, the lower rung of a, of a smuggling network where they have to do the hardest work, the most dangerous work yet at the same time are paid the least or how does that work?
1: I think that's another myth that is very much connected to smuggling. This perception that we are looking at, um, highly hierarchical organizations, and what the evidence systematically shows is that most of the people are actually connected to each other um, because they occupy a very similar or perform a very similar role. There is no need for hierarchy in migrant smuggling. People communicate um, in, in other ways. You know, they, they rely on, on a different way of... Um, structure. You know, for this, the work of Paolo Campana at Cambridge University has been key. There is really no need for a leader. Mm -hmm. People connect each other, people perform specific tasks, and they benefit at different levels from it. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, you know, this belief that we are looking at people who are in higher positions or lower positions and that only the ones at the bottom are benefiting from it. does not take into consideration the fact that the vast majority of the people who are apprehended for migrant smuggling around the world perform highly precarious activities, like this one, you know, like having to drive people through checkpoints, having to walk them through the desert, um, having to cross rivers and canals and pilot boats. These are very precarious and very dangerous jobs. I um, mean, w- when you ask um, people if if their you know th- those who work with them perform better jobs or improve jobs, they just look at you like saying like, no, this is how smuggling works. Everybody is really you know just doing the best they can to make a little bit of money.
0: Yeah, I that that um leads me to the next question. I you know in like I live in in Arizona, of course, in Tucson, um and i'm often in the southern arizona borderlands and uh, i want to hear you talk about the word cartel a little bit more because i i just in fact yesterday i was talking to people who say who told me that quote unquote the cartel um controls all of the border crossing and all of the migration across the border and i when they said that i was i have a little skepticism i like this kind of amorphous uh, entity, the cartel. You know, when I hear that, it's often depicting Mexico as something like, you know, Mexico is crime-ridden or Mexico as all these things, you know, and and creating this kind of, uh, where this this kind of line in the sand where you go to the United States and it's not that way at all. It's But uh, in Mexico, you know, crimes around the corner everywhere. But I wonder if you could comment on, on that that the cartel aspect of it.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, as you, um, you know, very accurately point out, the very notion of migrant smuggling is highly racialized and racist. Mm-hmm. It's also very gendered. So if we trace the history of migrant smuggling as a crime, it was intended you know, to identify gangs or organizations, that were facilitating the um, crossings of irregular migrants from the Global South. So from from its very conception, right? um, Smuggling had a very clear orientation in terms of who this was supposed to target and how we were supposed to be told as the public who the smugglers were. Mm -hmm. And Specifically, you know, in the case of uh, the Americas, um, we trace back, you know, the use of the word cartel. We know that this came, that this is not, um, it was not endemic, right? It didn't come up from from Colombian drug trafficking organizations. This was uh, an American term that was imposed onto them. So historically, what we've seen is once again this coupling or this equation. Of the drug trafficking organization in Colombia being transplanted or transported and translated into Mexico. And then what better threat? What better ideological threat do you, you know, could you ask for than coupling drug trafficking organizations with migrant smuggling? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I know that some people are critical of, of this. Um, you know, don't actually really endorse the notion of the cartel. And to put it into context, again, looking back at how migrant smuggling has been conceptualized, we just have to look at the way it is spoken of in Africa and in Europe. It is very often, quite often equated or put at the same Um, level with um, terrorist organizations. So what we have here in the Americas is the coupling of drug trafficking and migrant smuggling and in in other parts of terrorism and migrant smuggling. Why is that important? Because once again, these narratives depend on the racialization of men from the Global South mm -hmm, and their creation as threats. So that's why I'm always very cautious, you know, and I warn people against the use of the, the, the term cartel when they are speaking about drug trafficking organizations and specifically about migrant smuggling. Are drug trafficking organizations involved in migrant smuggling? Um, which I think, you know, that's, it's the, the following question, you know, or the one that would follow. Um, they are very much aware of each other. They use very similar routes. Enforcement has led them to use very, you know, almost identical corridors. Mm-hmm. So they always share information. Mm-hmm. They um, they also impose, uh, especially in the in the um, we know and this has been very well documented. DTOs, drug trafficking organizations, impose tax-like fees, derecho de piso, mm-hmm, to um, smugglers that may be operating um, on, you know, in their territories or along the roads that they use. However, this is not and it should not, you know, from my um, professional experience, it should not be interpreted as a merge of both markets. Um, again, enforcement has forced them to come and rely on very similar spaces together I and mean, in many times to depend on each other as uh, a labor force. Mm-hmm. This doesn't make them the same crime. This doesn't necessarily mean that one organization is working as the other. You know. Also, the term cartel has now, at this point, is this blanket term for anything that is related to crime, especially in the case of Mexico. You know, I think that everybody just talks about the cartel without really having a sense of what it is. Or how we are using it, because again, this narrative of security that is being mm, deployed by the state is so strong that we cannot really separate it from, you know, from from identifying different groups or different activities.
0: I'm curious about the correlation as we look at the build up, like say a border enforcement on the U.S.-Mexico border. Do you have have you seen a correlation between that and increased Smuggling, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Again, I'm very, another another word that I'm very cautious, you know, about is network, right? Like uh, everybody coming together is a network when that's not the case. Networks have a specific purpose, and that is something that we don't necessarily see all the time in, in smuggling. I think that one of the most specific transformations that we have seen worldwide is the flattening of the market um if you go to any jurisdiction along you know going back to the to our corridor um, any jurisdiction in central america mexico and the people who operate as you will mention on the american side of the border you will see that many of them are performing highly specific tasks that are not necessarily connected to a network many times they are you know just people who are, are work more like independent contractors they just go with somebody who may be able to offer them a job for that point in time. And that allows, once again, for their criminalization. You were mentioning um, Southern Arizona, something that we don't speak about quite often, right, is the criminalization of uh, Native Americans. We know that along the U.S.-Mexico border and also the um, U.S.-Canada border, many of the people who are involved in the facilitation of border crossings are Native American. Mm So there's, we see this very clear correlation of poverty, marginalization, lack of employment, and involvement in the specific, specific tasks that may generate a little bit of money for people to survive. And this sense of working independently, making use of their um, knowledge of the landscape, also, their their awareness and some of their, their the connections that they may have with people on both sides of the border. Mm-hmm. So I think that is one of the, the main aspects to keep in mind, this hyper-flattening of, of the markets. And especially along the U.S.-Mexico border, something that we're also witnessing is the increased involvement of very young people in this facilitation You know, on the American side of the border, crossing where... Um, Driving people, you know, to to other locations, um, aware of the fact that they are very likely not to face charges because of the, because of the fact that they are on their age. So we also see the feminization of this kind of role. You know, many times we just think again because we see migrant smugglers as men that women don't have anything to do and women are the number of women who have been prosecuted for migrant smuggling has actually doubled in the last 15 years Um, and that's because many of them once again are performing very specific tasks that are related to that are very gendered and like feeding people taking care of them watching over babies or the elderly or other pregnant women and being arrested or apprehended in that process so this is what we are again seeing, this massive criminalization of poverty along the US Mexico border. Mm-hmm. And that again targets people who have historically been, been um, uh, experiencing precarity. Mm-hmm. So that is what I what I would really like to emphasize. This is um, the the focus on organized crime prevents us from seeing how enforcement and inequality mm-hmm, disproportionately target the poor.
0: Yeah, so that's, you know, you look at the media around this stuff, you look at what's on the cable news, what's on the t- television, and there's a total emphasis of, of the cartel, of criminal organization, you know, all the different terms that are used. But you're saying that that is a blockade to what is really happening. Is that correct? Am I understanding you correctly?
1: Correct. It's a lot easier, right, to think that there are these massive organizations that have tentacles that go across borders and that there's dark-skinned men wearing boots and, and hats, right? Uh, it's it's sexy, it's appealing, it justifies budgets. It's a perfect fit for the, the narratives of security. But it, it, again, it prevents us, you know, as a as general public, from paying attention to the fact that Immigration uh, and border enforcement, you know, is the one that is creating the mechanisms that are preventing people from from being able to to travel in a dignified, legal, you know, and um, orderly way. So, but it's it's always easier, you know, it's a more it's a simpler message to just focus on on again, I hate the word cartel, on um, all of these representations that are that we are being hit with every day, mm-hmm. and not to engage critically. With inequality, with poverty, with gender, with racism, mm-hmm. and as they are related to smuggling.
0: So along those lines, how would you reframe the the discussion that we have around the border? What terms would you use, and then what what do you think would be at least some of the way uh, solutions, or you know, the, at least the beginnings of? how a solution might happen, or maybe the solution is getting rid of things, I don't know. But uh, what, what are your thoughts along these lines?
1: I am very surprised that very few of my colleagues in, in academia mentioned the fact that equal access to identity documents, visas and passports you know, is one of the key ways of solving this issue. Here I am talking about the fact that many people don't have access to birth certificates, that visas are ridiculously expensive, and that only those who are privileged enough to fulfill the requirements that are demanded for a visa are able to, just to qualify to apply for them, right? That does not even guarantee that you're going to get a visa. Um, The same comes, you know, with, with passports. So if people were given... Equal access to these documents, regardless of place of birth, mm-hmm. um, sex, you know, gender identity, age, mm-hmm. people would not have to rely on smuggling facilitators. Mm-hmm. That's, um, but but I think you know here the key word is equal access because right now the, the kind of access that we have to these documents is not. Mm-hmm. So I think that is that is one element. Another one is. We have to stop thinking about migrants just in terms of their victimization and their pain. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they are people who are smart, who are capable, mm-hmm. who um, are, I think that many times we, we just use this word, so you know, people are fleeing, people are escaping, like people are making a decision You know, with, with a kind of, um, based on their, the best of their abilities, To Mm depart. And also to understand that violence is not the only reason why people are leaving, that organized violence is not the only reason that is pushing people out of their communities. Gender-based violence, and here I am not only talking about the forms of violence that women may experience, but the very violence that is leading to men, and specifically young men, to be Um, one of the leading causes of that among them, you know, being um, armed violence. So understanding, you know, gender-based violence, understanding also the desire of people to move, to go to other places, and not just because, you know, again, all of these tropes of organized crime, you know, being behind them. People's decisions, you know, like all of our decisions are complex and are made on the basis of multiple variables. Also, another one that I would bring up is this notion that migrants are very gullible and that they don't know what they, what they do. Um, it is true that um, due to the vulnerabilities that they encounter, people have to, many times are easy prey of, of scams, extortion, you know. Um, but at the something that I a conversation that I often have with, um, with law enforcement who keep saying, well people need more information and people need to know more about what, what is likely, what the, what the journey is going to be like. Having worked you know, in this field, I can tell you people have as much information as they can. What they cannot control is the intensity of enforcement. Mm-hmm. And what that enforcement is going to lead those who are guiding their, their route, being not only the facilitators but also law enforcement itself to put them into situ- into situations of danger. Mm-hmm. So we have to stop saying that it is because people don't know because they are ignorant because they you know because they are being lied to by the smugglers. Mm-hmm. I think that is again a very important element of the the national security discourse that we really need to counter in a more critical fashion.
0: Do you think that any sort of you know, is there a proposal on the table or I don't know what this would even I guess an immigration reform bill, something like that, that you see as as a possibility of um, beginning to address these questions? Or is this something that's so far off the radar that that no one is really touching it? Or do you think there's any sort of in today's political climate, especially around the border of moving forward? with these, with some of these ideas?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, in D.C. there's no political will, right, to mm-hmm. engage critically yeah. with any of these ideas. Um, enforcement, the notion of transnationally organized crime, um, again, so-called cartels, is what is behind the kinds of budgets that we're seeing governments mobilize. Mm-hmm. And so there's really not going to be um, a, a movement or an effort towards changing that side of the narrative. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that there's um, something that is important and that we often forget. The border has a voice. The borderlands has a voice. And historically, it has been silenced. On those of us who have, uh, who call the border home, we have seen how systematically we are pushed out of the debates we are seen as an afterthought, you know, um, you know the, the border is very far away from D.C., right? From where the decisions are, are taken. So I think it's time for, um, to create, you know, all of these spaces for the people from the border. You know, they are the experts. They are the ones who should be doing the talking. And as, as academics, as policymakers, Mm-hmm. We should be taking a step back mm-hmm. and creating and, and actually creating you know spaces for the people mm-hmm. and so that they can also contribute to these debates because so far we are the ones dominating them. Mm-hmm. Every single meeting that we go to it's the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the border continues to be an afterthought. So until we take the border seriously, mm-hmm, um, we are you know the, the communities are going to continue experiencing, criminalization, victimization, you know, and to be constructed as threats. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who love the border, we know that we are a lot more and that we are, you know, so different from those those perceptions and, and constructs, right? So I think it's also I would also call, you know, people to think more critically about the way in which we, you know, are constructing the border.
0: Great. I think that's a good place to To um, end our discussion for today, Gabriela Sanchez, I really, really do appreciate you coming on to the Border Chronicle. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.